Thank you for streaming the audio messages of the Fountain Church. We've embarked on this new series entitled Beyond, and really the premise of this series is that God wants you to live a life or has a life planned for you beyond what you could ever ask, think, or imagine. And it's really birthed out of, um, out of a prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed uh, to the, for the church of Ephesus, or you guys may know them as the Ephesian church. And Paul was praying for them. He said, man, I just pray that you would be strengthened in your inner man. He says, I pray that you would be rooted in love. And then he just starts getting super pumped. And I just pray that you'd be filled to the fullness or with the fullness of God. And then he comes to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. And this has been our theme verse for this series. Look what he says. It says, now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond. Look at your neighbor and say beyond. All that we could ask or think according to his power that works within us. You know, when God is working in you, eventually that's going to trickle outside of you. If that ain't Jesus calling, put it on silent. Um, it's going to eventually trickle outside of you. And so today I want to speak to you from the subject of, just for a few minutes around the subject of great change. Great change. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we did not come to play church today. We didn't come to be entertained. We didn't come just to sit through a religious routine. God, we want to encounter you. We, we need you. Um, God, we want to hear your voice. Uh, God, we, we're dealing with real life in need of a real God. And so I just pray that today that hearts that might be down would be, um, in, uh, would be lifted up, Lord, that people that are here today and maybe life's going well, God, that they would be even more encouraged. And, God, I just ask that you would do something in us, God, that we would never be the same. And so, Lord, use my mouthpiece for your glory and for your namesake and for your fame. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. Well, I'm going to take you back to 1986. 19, actually, I'm sorry, 1896. Let's go back. Let's go way back. 1896. And, th and there was actually two brothers. Um, Steph, don't forget to uh, upload or switch that little gear on the computer for me. I'd appreciate it. Um, 1896, two brothers, two bicycle mechanics uh, named Oliver or Orville and Wilbur. These guys were hanging out, and they started to really find themselves intrigued by the media of their day that was highlighting these flying machines. Now, in their time, it was, you know, kites, and uh, they had a, a couple of other uh, gliders and hot, and hot air balloons and things of that sort. But as these guys looked at all of these flying machines, they noticed that they were lacking two things. They were lacking control. Like you could not navigate a flying machine in the air and actually control it. So people were just kind of going as the wind saw fit. And they were lacking power. And so after a lot of brainstorming and fumbling through several ideas, uh, they finally came to this conclusion through a lot of trial and error and invented what we know as the first airplane. You guys may know them as the Wright brothers. Let me show you. Let's take it way, way back to the very first plane. Let me show you this picture. That is an old school plane, just in case you didn't know. But, but what fascinates me, not just the fact that they built an, an aircraft, which is, I think, pretty fascinating in, in itself, but I think what was, was so amazing is they changed the way we see the world. You see, before these guys, we saw travel through two dimensions. 
We saw travel through um, via land and via sea, but nobody even thought air was possible. I mean, who, who would have ever thought flying in the air to and from would ever even be a reality? Well, as a result of that, you guys know that distance now doesn't seem as distant. Distance has kind of shrunk, and our horizons have broadened incredibly. It almost feels like as a result of that, the world feels a lot more connected because you can travel to and fro as you see fit. And so I started to think about, man, how much this really impacted the world, all of the possibilities that this opened up for people to dream, for people to, to explore, for ideas to, 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 to be spread. I mean, just so many possibilities. I mean, it, it was so big that it changed the way we do our economy works, the way we, we import and export. But I think one of the things that fascinates me the most is that this little invention would eventually be a catalyst to space travel. I mean, just really think about how much these guys change the way we see the world. But how many of you know that, if you're taking notes, you're going to want to jot this down, that with great change... Great change is never without great challenge. So a lot of times we see the highlight reels of all of these stories as people reflect on them. But, but these guys had a lot of trial and error. There was a lot of crash and burns just trying to get that first aircraft off the ground. In fact, Orville, he was on a test flight and he crashed the plane, broke his leg, and killed a passenger. You guys didn't know about that, did you? They don't tell you that stuff in the news. I mean, this, this, they, they went through so much ridicule. I mean, they went to the apartment, the United States Department of War, and, and they looked at them like they were crazy. They went to tons of different uh, governments across the world pitching their ideas. And everybody thought, listen, if two bicycle mechanics can make a plane, then we can certainly do it a lot better than you can. But they persisted because they had a great vision for great change. And as a result of that, you guys have experienced it. Shout out to Southwest. Um, if you've ever been, and if you're afraid to fly, you should do it one time. It's incredible. It's, it's amazing to be, you know, 30,000 feet in the air and big piece of metal and fabricated stuff that floats. It's pretty awesome. You should, you should try it. It's, it's incredible. But when you think about it, this is exactly what God does on the inside of us. And I really believe it's, it's a glimpse of what Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 3.20, that God wants to do something exceedingly abundantly beyond what you and I can ask, think, or imagine according to his power at work on the inside of us. You see, one of the things that the Spirit of God loves to birth on the inside of us is great vision for great change. I, I mean, let's go all the way back to Jesus' last staff meeting with his boys. He looks at him, he says, hey guys, getting ready to ascend to the Father, and he doesn't give them or us a good commission to go into the world and make disciples. He gives us a great commission, a commission that's so big that it's far, it's way, uh, it's way too impossible for us to accomplish on our own. And the early church, they experienced this reality that with great change comes great challenge. Because the moment they embarked on this mission, right away they were facing opposition. In fact, every single one of the disciples was martyred outside of John, who was exiled onto an island of, uh, onto the island of Patmos. And so they experienced that, listen, with great vision and with great change 
comes great challenge. Now, I, I think uh, for you and I, the Apostle Paul puts it, puts it so well. 2 Timothy, you're going to love this. You're going to want to write this down. 2 Timothy, look what Paul says. He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Who wants to memorize that promise? Like, we want all the promises, like, God bless me, Lord, I just want to live a good life, right? But this is a promise from God that if anybody want to live a godly life in here, come on, yep. Guess what your, your promise is? Persecution. Come on, let's give Jesus a big hand of praise today. <laughs> come on, you got to get excited about that. And, and I think all of us, all of us have experienced what that's like, because with great change comes great challenge. Now, you may have experienced this on, on a little bit more of a minute level, but nevertheless, it's still difficulty. It's still challenging. Like, we just embarked on 21 days of fasting and prayer a few weeks back. And uh, how many of you guys have started to, to jump on that, that prayer and fasting? Yeah, all three of you. It's awesome. It's great. God's going to do great things this year. But you know the feeling, those of you guys who embarked on that journey, for me, it was like instant challenge. You ever have God birth a great vision for great change, and you're super pumped, and then as soon as you step into that, it's, it's like you just got, whoa, I, I didn't even see that coming. I was just, just started on the journey, and boom. And so uh, that Sunday, we launched 21 Days of Fasting and Prayer. Woke up in the middle of the night. My daughter couldn't breathe. Uh, she had a croup cough, and, and normally when she's, has croup cough, we'll just take her outside because believe it or not, the cold air actually helps that. Or we'll throw her in the shower, let the steam uh, do its work. But this time she was, <gasps> her chest was sinking in. She, she couldn't breathe. And so, uh, so dad grabbed her, threw her in the front seat. First time she got to ride in the front seat without a car seat. She was really excited about that. Buckled her up, turned on my hazards and just went beeline for the hospital. So nevertheless, uh, after several hours, some steroids and a breathing treatment, we were good at 3 in the morning. And then I woke up the next day with the worst flu I've ever experienced in my life. And all I kept saying, it's 21 days. Here we go. And, and I, I knew at that moment I was so tempted just to, to, just to, to lay it down. You know, I need, I need protein. I need some steak. You know, but the Lord says, no, you need a smoothie. And so continue the course. But come on, you, you guys understand that. Those of you guys who have been fasting, you, you, you've craved a steak. I know you have. You feel that challenge. But maybe God has put a great vision in your heart for great change for your marriage this year. And already you're only three weeks in and you're more irritated with them than you ever expected. <laughs> right? Like you didn't even anticipate. You, you had this great desire. I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve him like Jesus. And, Lord, I'm going to bless her. And you guys have fought more in the last three weeks than you have in the last three years. Like, what is happening with great change? comes great challenges. Maybe for some of you, you decided to, to, to make a great change and be at church every week. Believe it or not, that's a miracle in the United States of America. The average person attends church one time a month. Not our church, but every other church, uh, one time a month. But maybe you decided to do that, and all of a sudden, you have no problem getting up for, for work every single Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Fridays. You can even get up on Saturday because it's fun day. You're going to go have a great day. But on Sunday, that demonic entity of Tempur-Pedic, Posturepedic, yes, and football, shout out, yes. That's demonic as well on occasions. Um, if the Raiders are losing, that's demonic. Okay, just so you guys know. Just kidding, just kidding. Uh, but, but this, is, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is life. Whenever there's great 
change, there's great challenge. Like maybe, maybe this year you decided to trust God with your finances. You're going to step out and, and actually tithe this year. And you experience uh, an onslaught of uh, bills, unexpected expenditures. And you're like, what in the world is happening? This is a word for somebody today. I know this is, God put this on my heart. And, and maybe you're here this morning and you just really sense that God wants to use you to do great things. Like you have this desire to reach people. You have this desire, I want to pray for the sick and the hurting and the broken. But then you get to the mall where there's tons of people hurting, sick, broken, need Jesus. And you feel that fear and insecurity overwhelm you. And you walk in and you walk out and don't talk to one soul. Because with great change is great challenge. Lastly, let me talk to the singles. Any singles in the house today? All right, a couple of you guys. So... You, you know that sense of maybe you've made a fresh commitment to purity. And you said, man, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to honor God with my body. Now, all of a sudden, you're, you're overwhelmed with this, this, this deep sense of loneliness that you haven't felt in a long time. And everybody starts calling. You get a couple winks on match, and you're like, well, what's going on? This is crazy, right? <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about. I mean, you know. Like, man, what is going on? And, and what ends up happening is God bursts great vision for great change on the inside of us, but unfortunately, many times it ends in great disappointment. And we find ourselves three weeks in, or we find ourselves butting up against this challenge, and, and, and we, we, we feel the gravity of that. We feel the tension of that. We feel the strain of that. And, and we find that this great change transitions into a great disappointment, because the truth of the matter is this. Whether you believe it or not, is there is an enemy of your soul that does not like God birthing great vision for great change. Now, the encouraging part, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, you got to hit him with a 4 by 4, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's true. However, the enemy is working very hard to accomplish John chapter 10, verse 10. Let me show you on the screen. John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Now, if you're a Christian, I probably just lost you. Because you've heard this passage a thousand times. But do you know what it means? See, when I was growing up, I, I, I always thought, okay, well, Satan, he's a klepto. He just wants to take all my stuff, my joy. And that's true. And he likes to kill. He's a murderer. It's very true. And he wants to destroy everything about my life. True. However, the word that Jesus used for kill, it's not murder. In fact, if you're taking notes, you might want to jot this down. It's the word theos or thuos. I want to show you this on the screen so you can check it out. It's coming. It's coming. There it is. Uh, Thuo. And look what it means. It means to sacrifice, surrender, or to give up something that is precious or dear. You see, what Satan cannot take from you, he will work very hard to convince you to lay it down. Many times through wearing you out. You see, this, this, this word thuo, it, it, it comes from uh, this idea of when people would go and offer a sacrifice at the altar. They would come with their sacrifice and they would lay it down. And so the enemy knows he can't steal your salvation. He can't steal your calling. He can't rob you of your gifts. But he can do whatever, he's going to do whatever he can to convince you to lay them down. To convince you that that great vision that God has birthed in your heart for great change, 
He's not, he, he may not be able to take that away, but he is going to work so hard to wear you down in such a way where he doesn't have to take it because you gladly sacrifice it and let it go. He didn't know that part, huh? And so one of the, the, the main means that he begins to wear us down by, if you're taking notes, you don't, probably don't even have to write this down because you understand what it means. It's discouragement. This is one of his best modes of, of apparendus. He, he loves to, to try to discourage. If he can get us in a discouraged state, it's going to be so easy to lay stuff down. Now, I really believe that my assignment today is to help dismantle discouragement in a few areas. Now, obviously, we can't tackle the in, entire topic of discouragement. But I do believe that there, there are three elements that the enemy uses over and over and over to try to discourage us in such a way where we quit, where we just end up laying down that dream, laying down that vision, laying down that reality for great change. We just, we, we lay it down. He doesn't even have to touch it. The enemy sometimes, listen, we're so good at laying stuff down. He just has to step back sometime like, you're going to destroy it. You're going to destroy yourself. I just want to make sure you stay in a place of discouragement. And I'm going to do whatever I can to, if I can't take it, to convince you to go on ahead and to lay that down. And these three things that we're going to look at is found in the book of Nehemiah. It's a book in the Old Testament. This, if this is your first time to church, um, I'm going to give you a little bit of context about Nehemiah just so you can understand who this guy is. And in Nehemiah, his, we, we find a true story, him dropped right uh, in the middle of the Persian Empire uh, at this particular time that Babylonians had conquered the people of Israel um, they, they overtook the land, and the Persians came and conquered the Babylonians. And now Nehemiah is a Jewish man who serves as a cupbearer to the king of Persia, the king Xerxes. And uh, Xerxes um, is, you know, just like any other king, is a little bit paranoid um, that people are going to try to take his life. Because in this particular day, many times kings would be assassinated from the inside through poison and things like that. So Nehemiah was the guy that would sip the wine before the king to make sure that everything was good. So if Nehemiah took a drink and his eyes looked okay and he's still standing, the king said, great, it's going to be a great night. And, uh, and so that was his job. So Nehemiah, he, he lived a very comfortable life. Even though he wasn't in charge, he still lived very comfortably in the palace. He was surrounded by luxury. Um, this was just, this was Nehemiah's reality. And so on one particular occasion, his brother came to speak to him, and they're in conversation, and Nehemiah says, hey, bro, what... How's it going in Jerusalem? Like, how's our countrymen doing? And, and uh, he said, really, they're not doing too good. He said, the, the, the walls have been torn down. The gates have been burned. Uh, now, at this particular time, the, 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 the temple had been uh, reconstructed, but the walls and the gates were still, still torn down. So, you know, enemies could just come and go as they please and exploit and rob and loot. And he just said, man, they're really discouraged. They're struggling, and, and Nehemiah heard this news, and, and God began to break his heart. And Nehemiah knew that this task of, of what was happening um, in Jerusalem and what God was putting on the inside of his heart was far greater than him. And so the Bible says that, that he went, and he got on his face, and he fasted 21 days, come on, and he prayed. He fasted, and he prayed, and it was in that moment that God began to birth a vision for great change in Nehemiah's heart. So Nehemiah was wrecked. Listen, when God gives you a vision and a burden for great change, it just changes everything about your life. 
And Nehemiah, he's kind of walking around a little, little way down, and the king says, hey, man, what's going on? And so he explains this, everything to the king, and the king says, man, go back to your homeland. I'm going to send you with resources. Like, get out of here. And so Nehemiah travels 1,000 miles from the palace to the rubble. Now, if you live in the continental U.S., it's really easy to do that. Jump on Southwest. Like I said, I don't know why I'm giving Southwest so many shots out today, but um, they've always been good customer service for me. So uh, I, I just, you know, if you live in the United States, that's easy. But to travel in those days 1,000 miles, that was a massive commitment to go from the palace of comfort to the rubbish of the rubble and just to, to, to make that journey. But how many of you know that sometimes when God bursts a great vision for great change in your life, it will cause you to leave the comforts as you know to go into the mess. And you feel great about it. Because there's just this deep conviction, there's this great vision for great change that God has birthed in your heart. So fast forward, uh, Nehemiah gets, gets to Jerusalem, he examines everything, he gets all the people on board, he casts the big vision, and they're excited, they're ready to run, and that's chapters 1 through 3. But there's always a chapter 4. Chapters 1 through 3, if you look, Nehemiah, the wind is to his back. He's doing great. I mean, the people are on board. He's got some resources. They're ready to build. But then chapter 4. In chapter 4, we're, we're introduced to a man by the name of Stambalot, which was a, a Persian politician uh, of the day. And he had his camp set up in Jerusalem. Now, after the, the Persians took over Babylon, stuff was kind of just... There wasn't a lot of order in certain areas, and so this guy, whether he was appointed there or not, he set up shop in Jerusalem and really enjoyed uh, exploiting the Jews. Just, I mean, he was running the show. And so he was not excited about great change. How many of you guys know when God bursts a great vision for great change, the enemy's not like, yeah, go ahead, this is awesome, do it, I'm for you. No, he's just, that's not, that's not how it works, and he became enraged. And even though we wrestle against flesh and blood, how many know Satan still uses people? And so he becomes enraged. He's frustrated. He's going to do whatever he can. Now, this is, this is a very key part of the story is Nehemiah got permission from the king. So Sambalot is outranked, meaning Sambalot cannot take permission, permission away from Nehemiah. He cannot take um, the, uh, the ability, or he cannot take away the resources. He can't do any of that, but what he will try to do is get the people to lay down. And he's going to do whatever he can to discourage them in, before they build and in the midst of the build. And that's where we're going to get to our first point today. The, the first aspect of dismantling discouragement, if you're taking notes, you're going to want to jot this down, and that's that we need to boast in our weakness not run from it. Boast in your weakness. Don't run from it. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Look what it says. Sambalot was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian, uh, Sumerian army officers, he says, what does this bunch of poor, feeble, everybody say feeble, Jews think they are doing. Now, this word feeble, it means to be withered and to be miserable. See, he was looking at these guys. Some of them were in their, their, their 70s and 80s. Many of them had jo jobs of, of perfumers. That's <laughs> kind of, you know, they would make perfume. And everybody's looking at me like, what's a perfumer? 
they would make perfume. And so you could imagine they were getting, you know, they were really getting made fun of for that. Uh, and then they have some brick and mortar, and, and, and Sambalot's looking like, what in the world? You feeble, you withered, miserable people. I mean, because up to this point, they were discouraged. They didn't have anything ex- externally that you would look and say, they're going to be a success. They had no resources that the human, human eye could see. And so Sambalot was like, are you serious? Look at these guys. What are you going to, you think, you feeble little people. It's, it's so amazing because it reminds me of, of the prophet Elisha. And I want to read this to you. It's not going to be on the screen. But I want to read this to you for a moment. And I think it, there's, a, there's a, a really profound truth in this. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. And it says this. And we're going to start in verse uh, 15. It says, well, let me give you the, the context. The, the prophet Elisha uh, was being pursued by the, the Syrian king. He wanted to, to capture him, take him out the game. And Elijah's like, nice try, buddy. Verse 15, it says, when the servant of the man of God, the servant of Elijah, got up early the next morning, he went outside, and there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elijah. I love Elijah's response. I could imagine as a prophet too, Elijah, he's just solid. He's looking at his servant. His servant's like, man, like we're surrounded. What's going on? Look at, look at Elijah's response. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Elijah told him. For there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elijah prayed, oh, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes. And when he looked up, let me show you what he saw. He saw that hillside around Elisha filled with horses and chariots of fire. I mean, you could imagine this army that once looked so big, now in light of the greater army, looked very small. See, one of the tactics of the enemy is he will always work really hard to make you believe that his team is more powerful than your team. And it's just not true. That, that, that his resources are greater than God's abilities and resources in your life. And that is just not true. But many times we live like that because we can't see this all the time. But I love what Peter says. He said, even though we cannot see, we believe and are filled with an inexpressible joy. Surrounded. Oh, no. The enemy would love for you to think you're outnumbered when in reality he knows he is. But if he can get you to believe you're outnumbered, you'll lay it down. You'll quit. You'll throw in the towel. You will give up and lay it as a sacrifice. But that is just not true. My, my buddy Sean, uh, him and his dear, uh, dear wife, Pastor Sean and Diane and Nepstead, they have been mentors to us. They have, um, ever since we, we came to Fountain, they've mentored us from day one. Um, and just become really dear friends of ours. Well, two years ago, uh, they were able to, had an opportunity to purchase an orchard supply uh, in Antioch for their church. And, uh, but the only catch was is they had to get staples to approve them. And so they said, hey, we'll, you know, pay you like $2 a square foot. It was like 150000 just to say yes. And, you know, we promise we'll work on the parking and all this good stuff. Well, let me show you the, the letter that Staples wrote to them, wrote back. They said, please be advised that Staples' position remains firm, and this shall serve as a final notice, 
final, I love final notice, and then they highlight denial of such request. And so they were like, man, what in the world? Like, how do you stand up to a corporation like that? Like, how, do you, how, do you, how do you fight that? And so Pastor Sean, he's like one of the most creative guys I know. He's like, we're going to write letters. And so everybody's like, what? Write letters? Yeah, if you want a letter, here, let's write. And, and so they ended up just writing tons of letters. Now, letters, it seems really feeble. It seems really weak. It seems like, come on, I mean, a letter? Like, what, what, is that really going to change anything? You ever had that thought? Like, is this little feeble resource going to actually do anything? And so the next week, he said, I got his email. So they sent him a bunch of emails. <laughs> and so anyways, he's traveling, speaking at a conference, and he gets word that uh, they said, hey, have you heard? He said, heard what? They said, Staples, they, they have renounced their, their position. He said that we have, we have heard, um, we, have ex- we have received all the letters and emails, and they have not fallen on deaf ears. We're not going to take your money. You guys get permission. And now they're reaching thousands of people. But that's, isn't, yeah, you could clap for that. That's exciting. <clears throat> but but here, here's where, where I, I want to lean in. A, some feeble letters. I mean, from the outside, it looks so weak. It looks so inexperienced. What are you going to do with some letters? And God says, I can do a whole lot with just a little. Don't you remember, like, like a little kid brought his Lunchable to Jesus. Jesus, there's 5,000 people that are hungry. Jesus told his disciples, you feed them. They said, well, Jesus, we got a Lunchable from this little boy. And Jesus said, perfect, and fed the multitudes. Are you guys tracking with that? Peter's been fishing all night. Jesus said, oh, man, you just got to throw it on the other side. It looked very feeble. It looked very, to, to go out and try. I've been fishing all night, Lord. I mean, come on, I'm tired. Just throw the nets on the other side. He does it full of fish. Like he said, just a little mustard seed of faith can move mountains. Come on. Listen, God knows how to work with a little. God knows what he's doing. He knows how to work with just a little bit of stuff. Now, now this, this is huge. You and I need to boast in our weakness because this is what the Apostle Paul tells us. Look what he says, 2 Corinthians. He says, Paul is dealing with some challenges. He says, but the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, look what Paul said, therefore, I will boast. I'm going to get excited in my weakness. Why? Why, why am I going to do that? All the more I'm going to boast in my weakness. Why? That Christ's power may rest on me. See, listen, your weakness is an opportunity for God's power. But here's the problem is many of us want to experience God's power. Anybody want to experience God's power? But this, this is what we do. We run from our weakness rather than boast about it. And so we never, because of our weakness, we never step we just lay down. And because we've laid down in light of our weakness, we don't experience that power. Like when you look at the early church, when they were experiencing a move in the power of God, it wasn't because they were just kind of sitting around doing a holy huddle. No, they were stepping out in their weakness, in their vulnerability, and God was moving mountains. Listen, where are you running where you should be boasting? Boast in your weakness. The power of Christ will rest upon you. If you run from it, you'll lay it down. If you boast in it, you'll get excited because there's an opportunity for God to move and display his glory. It's good. It's good. 
Number two, if you're taking notes, jot this down. We got to worship through the clutter. We got to worship through the clutter. Now, you got to imagine this for a moment. The temple was finished, it was functional. It had been operating now for about 70 years. But every single day, as the people of God would go to worship, they were reminded of the walls. And, and, and look, look, what, look what Sambalat threw at them. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 2. He says, do they think they can build the wall in a single day just by offering a few sacrifices? I mean, imagine this. They had, to, they had to, as they're on their way to worship God, they had to walk past a bunch of clutter. Come on, some of you, that's what your Sunday looked like this morning. Like you're, just, you're trying to get to church and you just, all you see is clutter. <laughs> some of you guys are, my house is a mess. I'm not talking about that clutter, but... You just see, it could be, that could be a problem. Husbands, step up your game. <laughs> and you're just, and you just see and you feel, you feel that fight. And then you have the voice of the enemy saying, so, so what are you going to do? You going to offer a couple sacrifices? Your worship doesn't work. Come on, this place has been established for another seven, for 70 years. What kind of God do you serve? You think you can build the wall in a single day? It's been in ruins for 140 years. Come on. Like you ever had that voice? Why are you even going to pray? Like what's the point? Look how cluttery and messed up things are. You really think that a couple of sacrifices are going to change anything? You know what Sambalot is doing? This is very demonic. And it's very demonic because what he's doing is he's trying, to, he's trying to give the people a distorted image of God. Can I just tell you that if you have a distorted image of God, you will have a distorted image of you. You will have a distorted image of the world. If he can distort your image of God, he's attacking God's goodness. What he's saying is if your God is really good, where's he at? Come on, anybody ever, any ever, anybody ever felt that way where, where there's been some challenges you had a great vision for great change, but you're facing a great challenge, and you just feel that in the depth of your soul, and that voice comes and says, where's he at? Your worship's not going to work. Sleep in. What, well, you think one Sunday is going to change anything? Like, come on. And what do we do? Many times, subtly, we just bow. And this is so crazy is that God has heard their prayer. God is, is sending somebody to, to pump some vision back on the inside of them. I mean, God is moving on their behalf. But listen, just because there's clutter does not mean God isn't working. And so you have to learn, I have to learn to worship through the clutter. It's taking too long. Where's God? Where's he at? And then he starts whispering things like this. Listen, you know what's the enemy when you start to hear these in your head, who are you? Are. You like that? See, the devil's just confusing. Straight up. Confusing. As soon as that happened first service, I left it up there intentionally. First it happened first service, they instantly thought, how can you as a pastor have a typo, man, on the screen? 
said, man, devil, I'm leaving it. Devil, not today. I'm leaving it. He said, he says things like, how, how can you be a believer? Just look at the, did you see all this stuff? You really think God hears you? Why hasn't he fixed your marriage? Why haven't you found somebody? Why are you so depressed and anxious? What about this one? What nerve do you have to worship? What nerve? Like you can't lead a small group. Come on. Join the dream team. Like who are you? A nice little plug right there. You see that? That's how we do it. It's called a transition. Satan just, just starts to whisper these lies. Can I, can I just tell you this, and we're going we're gonna to wrap up here in, just, in just, just a minute. Because he knows, he wants to do whatever he can to keep you from worship. Because he knows, listen, that praise is the language of faith. And when you start to praise in the midst of the clutter, you, what you're declaring is that, no, God is good. That God does hear my cry. That God does have a plan, and I may not be able to see it in the midst of the clutter, but I will hold on to the character of God because I know who he is. That's why David said it like this, Psalm 34. David said, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. Whether there's clutter or there's no clutter, his praise will continually be in my mouth. Come on, let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Come and worship the Lord with me. For I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all of my fears. Those that look to him are radiant and their faces will never be put to shame. You can see how even in that, David's faith is rising as he's praising. Now worship is more than a song, but it's not less than. Because a song of praise is a result of a full heart, even though sometimes it's a sacrifice of praise. But he knows. This, this last uh, couple weeks ago, I, I was invited to a conference to speak, and, and I was so, such a, it's so honored to, to be able to do it. And they invited me last year, and I felt like I blew it. I'm like, oh, man, I don't know if they're going to have me back <laughs> this next year. And, I just, I felt like I blew it. Now, God was working on me in some areas, and I'm always a lot harder on myself than, um, than anybody else. But, you know, you just walk. You have one of those moments. You probably don't know. But you just have one of those moments where it's just like, oh, gosh, like I just bombed. And then my friend got up and killed it. I was like, oh, oh. Right? I just kind of walked away. I'm, just, I'm not going to preach anymore. I'm just going to lay this down. Right? It's a sad story. And, uh. And so he invited me back, and I got, I got over that real quick. God kind of whipped my behind, like, what are you doing? Get it. Stop relying on yourself. Boast in your weakness. I moved in people's lives that day, right? But then I got, it was, it was my night to speak, and all of a sudden, the voices start coming. Oh, you remember last year? Oh, man. What if he doesn't come through? You didn't feel like he came through last time. Do you, I mean, just start. And so I said, you know what? We turned on music in the, in the sanctuary and just started to worship and started to declare. And, and this, was, this was a powerful moment because the enemy wanted me so focused on the clutter. But as I, as I started to worship, I, I, I experienced something I've never experienced before. And I'm not like this guy that has dreams all the time and like the heavens part and God speaks to me. Normally it's like three doors are open and I'm like, I don't know what to do. You know, so <laughs> I'm not that guy. But, but I, I started uh, during, I was just worshiping, we were praising him and and I, I, I got this glimpse, I, I could feel 
just a glimpse of God's love for people. And it just, it melted me. It, it, it just, I was like, what? And instantly, it was, like, it was like the Lord saying, get your mind off the clutter and onto the change that I want to bring. I love these people. You have an assignment here. Get focused, young man. Let's get in the game. And so, so something happens when we praise. Praise gets our, our, our minds not just off the problem, onto God, but it, it, it shifts from the clutter to the change that God is wanting to bring. And so we have to learn. So let me just ask you a, a question today is, is how many of you have bowed down in the midst of the clutter and stopped worshiping? God has not stopped working. Don't stop worshiping. Last point is this. Last point is this. Let God use your past so he can build your future. Let God use your past so he can build your future. Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 2, closing verse, he says this. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? See, it's really interesting. Nehemiah, he, he came with resources, but he only came with timber. It's like, how are you going to, you can rebuild the gates, but how are you going to rebuild the walls? And the answer to that question is so significant to what God wants to do in your life and in my life. Because the only way that they were going to rebuild the walls, if they would reclaim, retool, restore, recover the stones that laid in the rubble. And so it was almost as if God is saying, listen, don't, listen, you've walked past this. I, I, I thought about this. This kind of blew my mind. As they've been crying out to God, and God says, listen, you've been my plan the whole time. You've been my plan the whole time. You just didn't have any vision for great change because you laid it down in the midst of the rubble. You stopped worshiping. You, you, you lost sight. Rather than boasting in your weakness, you bowed, you ran from it. And God was saying, don't you get it? Like, I'm going to use the very thing that the enemy destroyed to rebuild something that you could never even imagine to be possible. And worship team, you guys could come up. Get this picture in your mind. God says, I'm going to remove your humiliation. I'm going to restore your brokenness. I'm going to revitalize your life in such a way that the world is going to take notice. Listen, the enemy is not going to be able to come and go as he pleases. There's going to be safety. There's going to be refuge. Now, now hear me. Here, here's the key, though. Satan will always use your past, whether you like it or not. With God, he's the gentleman. He will stand at the door and knock. But you have to invite him into your past so that he can rebuild your future. Are you guys tracking with that? What do I mean by that? I mean, you have to invite the Lord to come in and heal you from stuff that you've been avoiding and walking past every single day, thinking it's impossible. Now, now look at this. 140 years, these things laid in ruins. Guess what? They rebuilt in 52 days. Here's what the enemy says. Look at it. They're burned. It's rubbish. You're done. You're washed up. You're withered. You're feeble. It's not going to work. Look at all the clutter. Blah, 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 blah. And God says, I could do this in record time. I can rebuild. I can restore. I can take the very damaged products and make them brand new again. In a record time. But you have to invite me. And look what Jesus says. 
He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to heal the brokenhearted. Psalm 34 says, God is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in their spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, the same spirit that was upon Jesus as a follower of Jesus now lives on the inside of you. God didn't send us to Nehemiah. He sent us his spirit to rebuild us in such a way on the inside that would be infinitely, abundantly beyond what we could ever ask, think, or imagine. And many times he uses past failures and past challenges to build for the future. So don't be afraid of your past. Don't be afraid of the brokenness. Don't ignore it. Invite him in to heal it so that he can build a future that you never even thought possible. And in the meantime, because you're leaving here and some of you guys are going back to clutter. In the meantime, he will keep you in perfect peace. In the meantime, he will set up sensory duty. The Holy Spirit will guard you as God is rebuilding. Probably one of my favorite stories is Ian Padawinski, one of the greatest pianists of all time from Poland. There's a young little kid. Actually, I think they actually made a commercial about it, but I told the story long before the commercial. They were at this recital or this, this big event, and Ian was about to come up on the platform, and there was this little, little boy sitting with his mom, and he sneaks away, and he sneaks up onto the platform behind Ian's grand piano, and he starts playing chopsticks. And the master of ceremonies is like, oh no, like, who is this kid? What are we gonna do? And, and I love it because Ian comes out and he whispers in the kid's ear, keep playing, don't stop, keep playing. And he comes on top of that young boy. He said, keep playing those chopsticks because I'm gonna tickle these ivories and we're gonna make a masterpiece out of your mistake. Everybody, they wrapped it up and everybody stood to their feet and they cheered. It was like, yeah, that's the God that we serve. He makes masterpieces out of mistakes. So let me, let me tell you, listen, boast in your weakness. Do not run from it. Get excited. It's an opportunity for God's power to move in and through your life. Secondly, worship in the midst of the clutter. Don't lay down your worship. Whatever you do, do not lay down your worship for you are not outnumbered, I promise you that. And God is at work, even in the midst of the clutter. And lastly is invite him to use your past to rebuild your future. And I promise you, those right there will extinguish those darts of discouragement, dismantle as the enemy tries to take shots as we move forward in 2018. Amen.